0: And welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday. And this series on science advice and government is produced together with Expertise Under Pressure, which is a research project of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. This is a further episode in our series looking at science advice to government in the context of the COVID pandemic and other extreme risks. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by guests who can talk about extreme risks and how government understands and responds to them. Martin Rees is the Astronomer Royal, an astronomer and cosmologist, a member of the House of Lords, which in December last year published a report on preparing for extreme risks, which tackled some of these the questions about how governments understand and respond and prepare for extreme risks. And we're also joined by Suzanne Rain who's an affiliated lecturer at the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge and was formerly a civil servant and spent time um, running the UK's Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre. So has some experience of what it's like inside government thinking and responding to risks. And also Kristen McCaskill, who's an assistant professor in the engineering department at Cambridge. Her work is on the governance and resilience of infrastructure. And also before joining the university, Kristen spent a number of years in industry looking at disaster response and infrastructure. So we have expert guests who have lots to say about government and extreme risks. Martin, I'd like to turn to you first. Uh, What do you feel were the most important lessons that the House of Lords Special Inquiry raised with respect to how the UK government in particular plans for, prepares for, and responds to extreme risks. Maybe you could start by actually saying what extreme risks are and what was the House of Lords concerned about?
1: Yes. Well, of course, the setting up of this particular study was stimulated by COVID-19, which was of course a wake up call, although people realised that uh, pandemics weren't all that unlikely. It wasn't really on the public agenda. And we had an event that spread globally and was catastrophic, and also which cascaded in surprising ways. No one had really predicted that a, a pandemic would have such a big effect on the education system, for instance. And so the report of the House of Lords was concerned with how we can be better prepared for these massive threats of all kinds. And, of course, pandemics are uh, one of them. Uh, others might be catastrophic failures of the grid or of the internet, or other kinds of biological disasters, or terrorism and things of that kind. And the uh, report was published in December, and let me advertise it by holding it up uh, here. It was published in December, and uh, according to the, the rules, uh, the government has to produce a response, which will then be debated. But uh, as to uh, what we recommended, we were concerned that these extreme risks weren't high enough on the government agenda. And that's understandable because they're unpredictable and the extreme ones are rare, unlikely to happen in the five years of a particular government, etc. cetera. So they tend to get uh, uh, downgraded in importance. And uh, in the UK in particular, we felt this had happened. And although there is a national risk register, we felt it was not prepared uh, with enough consultation And there certainly weren't, for instance, exercises, as the military would have, to explore scenarios to see if people are prepared. And because any serious disaster is going to have effects that resonate across different departments, different parts of society, we felt there should be a better central structure. There should be a particular person, a particular officer, who is in overall charge of the preparedness and management of extreme threats of all kinds, And there should be an appropriate delegation to local governments who will have to handle on the ground uh, the consequences of what happens. So we just felt that uh, the government was unprepared. And in particular, there is something called the National Risk Register, which is a matrix which plots possible risks. Along two parameters, um, along horizontally, there is the the likelihood of a risk occurring and vertically how serious it is. And uh, we felt that this was not a very good way of preparing and comparing risks, in particular because it estimated the likelihood of a particular event in the next two years. And the reason that's uh, a deficiency is that many of the kind of threats we're talking about extreme climatic events, terrorism and cyber attacks and things like that, their likelihood is increasing year by year. So if we just think of it the first two years, we won't prepare adequately a higher probability in 10 and 20 years. So we needed more long-term thinking in the planning, more joined up thinking. And, of course, to have better preparedness, we need some international action to a great extent that we have now.
0: So, I mean, that's a very clear summary of some of the main points, Long, longer term thinking, more openness. But I'm interested in, in getting into a little bit more detail about the point you made about having single sort of accountable officers. How did the report come up with that as a recommendation? And did you have sort of examples in your mind about how that could work in practice?
1: Well, first of all, we uh, uh, we had... On our committee, seven ex-ministers and two former defence secretaries, Des Brown and uh, uh, George Robertson. And they both banged on about the importance of exercises so that people are are prepared. Uh, We also had some international input. We had witnesses from uh, Germany, uh, Sweden and Singapore, which all have a rather better organised and better prepared uh, system. Um, and Japan does as well. So we we did have that sort of input, which indicated we were underprepared. Um, and people realized there's got to be some local authority. I mean, to, to take one small example, small as it wasn't catastrophic. There was this uh, failure of a potential failure of a dam in Derbyshire a couple of years ago. And we interviewed the chief constable and she had no authority to tell people to evacuate, even when it was essential. Uh, because the lines of command weren 't clear cut, and so that's just an example where we need to have delegated local authority to cope with these things
0: i mean I'm interested to perhaps bring in Suzanne here on the point of having because I think martin you're saying that there needs to be greater clarity of at the center in terms of who is responsible for thinking about and managing a specific risk, as well as a clearer sense of how that's sort of delegated as well, if that's your point, Martin.
1: Mm, that, that's right. And, and of course, uh, it's got to be decentralized to the, uh, the the local bodies, which are going to be involved in uh, dealing with the immediate impacts. And they've got to know what their delegated authority is.
0: Because I'd be interested in hearing from Suzanne, who, who as I said, um, ran the UK's uh, joint Terrorism uh, Analysis Centre. So, obviously, was involved in some of these questions as they related to terrorism. Um, how do you see that recommendation from the House of Lords working in practice?
2: Thank you, Rob. I think the the question about working in practice is is the critical question. And the piece of the argument which I'd like to explore more is how you anticipate so that you are able to take action so that a risk doesn't materialize. And for me, the critical element of that is about the monitoring and the warning that a risk is changing, that it's moving past its mitigations, that it might materialize. And if you think just a sort of overarching way, the UK's national risk register says that it tracks and prepares for over a hundred risks. Some of those are high impact, low likelihood. But that makes it obviously harder because any decision to act on a high impact, low likelihood, sort of low probability event means that you have to confound all the algorithms that say this is exceptionally unlikely. So you have to build something which enables you to say, I know this is exceptionally unlikely, but I think we need to act. And that's a warning system. And we have it for certain distinct risks. And we have it for terrorism for, again, for historical reasons, essentially, because we didn't have one. And we found through a series of incidents, most notably the Bali bombing, when there was, you know, sort of people looked into it afterwards and said, had we had one clear warning system, it might've been possible not to stop the attack, but to have been monitoring a buildup of threat that could have flagged this in a different way. And, and that's it. basically the, the sort of critical point was, we need clarity. We need one body whose job it is to warn and somebody else can do the response, but you need a clear voice. So for me, the questions which we should be asking ourselves across all of the risks are, can we clearly describe our system for identifying new or escalating threats and hazards? What is our system for warning that they have emerged or or, or that they're escalating beyond the mitigation? And then Martin's other point, do we know who is responsible for what? So who owns each of the risks? And I think it would terrify civil servants if you were to say this line on the national risk register is owned by this director general and you are responsible for telling us if this risk is changing because they would instantly say well i don't have the resources to do that i don't have anything set up to do that and that of course would be a terrific discovery for us all to make and then you know there will be at some point there will be overlaps where multiple different departments think they're doing a bit of it And if that's the case, it's wasted resource, which we haven't got. And in some cases, there'll be underlaps where multiple different departments think that somebody else is doing it. And in fact, they're not. And that's unmanaged risk. So you need to draw the lines and see what they look like. What does the connecting thread look like? And if you can't draw the line, then it very probably won't work.
0: What you say, Suzanne, sounds compelling. What I'm wondering about is how likely is it that we can get to a point where we delineate the sort of the boundaries around the specific risks we're interested in and then can identify a sort of responsibility and accountability within government. I mean, you know from the example of terrorism, how complicated that is with respect to one risk, what's your sense of the likelihood that we might make progress across a wider array of risks?
2: It's a choice. The likelihood depends on wanting to do it. For me, I've learned an awful lot from engagement with the corporate world, seeing how they put management of risks as a central factor in how they position themselves how they basically ensure that the business keeps going if you're a major bank you've got a set of serious risks that have to be managed and you do that by very clearly saying this is the risk owner and this person's livelihood depends on how well they manage that risk if we're saying in government we can't do that i think we do have to ask ourselves why why can't we nominate risk owners for each other, if we're making a list of risks, we should be able to say who's responsible, at the very least, for notifying if they are changing. There's an important point that is sort of alongside that, which is that question of who is empowered to sound the alarm. I think we've learnt multiple times that you can't have multiple voices sounding alarms simultaneously or, or not simultaneously because that creates chaos. You have to have one clear voice if you want action. For that to continue to be heard, it needs to be right more often than not. So you need to put effort and resource into making sure that that warning system, the alarm, can be as, as good as it can be. So for me, that's where you have the committee, you have the discussion, you, you, you have all of that as part of a process, as part of the Warning process, but there comes a time when you have to have one person who is empowered to, who is responsible for saying, now is the time to act if we want to either prevent the bad thing happening, or given that we can't prevent the bad thing happening, to put the preparations in place such that we minimize the impact of it. The question is can that voice be an independent voice? For terrorism, the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre is an independent body, and it sounds the alarm irrespective of ministerial views. It makes a judgment on the threat, and that is passed to the Home Secretary for them to announce, not for them to question. And it works for the politicians because they can say, you need to listen to this. There has been no political interference in this. I'm, you know, we're not manipulating the threat level for our political ends it works secondly because then if the warning for whatever reason isn't right they can say I've been passed this by my independent experts it wasn't my fault but it was wrong so in that sense it puts more pressure on on the the experts I suppose but the issue is are there things where political leaders would be uncomfortable delegating warning to an independent voice so for example warning about fuel shortages or truck driver shortages or food shortages, you know, things which essentially could be said to be within political control. Are you ever going to be comfortable with saying we're going to give an independent body the responsibility for telling us that our infrastructure is not working?
1: Just one comment. It does depend very much on the particular risk, doesn't it? Because if we think of pandemics, then of course, uh, if we have global monitoring, then we may have two or three weeks warning, as we did at this time. And then the question is, who is to decide on the response to that? But uh, if there's going to be some bad weather, then we may have a few days warning. But if there's going to be some massive cyber attack, or maybe some biological engineered attack or something like that, We may have essentially zero warning, surely. And isn't that the issue where you have to ensure that all the time there are people prepared to jump into action?
2: Yes. I I mean, for me, I would be constantly monitoring and tracking changes in the risks that we've said are sufficiently important to go on the risk register. And and you're right. Some of them are very short timescale. Some of them appear to be a long timescale, but they could happen tomorrow. So the the timescales are always a bit misleading. And that's why you have to be vigilant and anticipating and projecting, but not super forecasting, which I think does not actually help in these instances.
1: Yes. But to come back again, uh, you've got to be prepared. And this requires to have done uh, exercises of how you respond and make sure that the people locally uh, know what their authority is and what they can do.
2: Exactly. That thread of the difference between warning alert levels and response levels is a really important one. And people often get confused between the two, but the warning is the alarm. And then you should, if your system is working, you should be really clear whose job it is to listen to the alarm and to respond to it. And that's the entirety of of the, the warning and alarm cycle that there's there's a completely separate section which is what we do about the warning and they absolutely you know have to have the, the authority to take the action necessary
0: I mean I think this is this is fascinating and I'm, I'm totally con- convinced by uh, Martin and Suzanne's <laughs> arguments uh, about the importance of you know identifying risks that we care about knowing that we'll miss some or be wrong but you know at least having a proper serious go and then acting on that, Seriously, but I, I wonder if you could extend the argument a little bit, and maybe I'll turn to Martin and and then Kristin, because we've sort of been talking as if you know these risks are exogenous that government then has to respond to a risk that is that hits it. But I think the report also identified areas such as infrastructure where you know government is responsible in part for building or regulating infrastructure, and that over time actually you know, the the investment choices we collectively make in our infrastructure does impact on the kinds of risks we're exposed to. So it's not just a sort of warning response, but actually a kind of investment management design question as well. To what extent did the House of Lords get into that territory, Martin?
1: Well, it was very concerned about issues like, for instance, decaying infrastructure. We talked about the uh, um, Italian bridge, made of concrete, built in the 1950s, which uh, collapsed. Um, and we're mindful, of course, that we depend on Victorian infrastructure in many ways, some dams, for instance. And so we realise that there is an obligation on those responsible to ensure that maintenance isn't deferred. And this goes back to the question of long-term investments and the uh, appropriate Rate at which you discount future benefits and disbenefits, and there's something called the Treasury Green Book, which sets a recipe for how you assess future benefits and disbenefits. And uh, this uh, applies a discount rate of 3.5% per year for the first 20 years after the present. And we think this is too much because uh, if we think of um, risks like pandemics and cyber attacks, which are growing year by year, we ought to be prepared to prepare for uh, such events up to 20 years into the future. And if we discount that by a factor of 50% compared to something happening now, we are going to underinvest. So the feeling is that the discount rate implied by the Treasury Green Book is a disincentive to doing the long-term maintenance and the preparation for risks which are growing year by year.
0: Kristen, I know that you sort of had first-hand experience of some of these questions in the infrastructural and engineering response to the Christchurch earthquake. How would you say that the research you've done informs this question about decisions about investment in infrastructure in the light of the kinds of risks we've been talking about?
3: When we're responding or or recovering from a major event, it's often perceived that there is an opportunity to build back better. And we've seen that rhetoric coming through in the COVID uh, recovery. It's quite unusual in that sense, actually, because we're talking about changing our cities and infrastructure, but that actually wasn't directly impacted by COVID. So that's an interesting uh, example. But when it came to the recovery of Christchurch, um, New Zealand is a country that is well aware of its exposure to earthquake risk, and in light of that is one of the most prepared countries in the world. It's highly insured because it can't build its way out, fully build its way out of, of that risk and therefore has prepared itself for it. But when it came to the major earthquake in Christchurch in 2011 and looking at how the engineers were rebuilding the city. Following that, there was an exploration of whether or not we should change the technology of the wastewater infrastructure so it was less vulnerable to earthquake damage. And just like what Martin's just described, when you're looking at investment into major infrastructure, you look at a a discount rate over time and what the engineers were doing were exploring various scenarios of possibilities of earthquakes in 10 or 20 years time and whether or not it was worth the increased investment upfront, should there be another earthquake in the future. But in the end, the the pressure was on to reduce upfront costs. So even uh, when there was an attempt to try and factor in those longer term costs that are within the lifetime um, of that infrastructure in 20 or 30 years time, the whole system was just driving decisions towards reducing the capital costs. And that's very much ingrained in our decision making when it comes to um, investment in infrastructure.
0: Given the sort of the points we've been making, how can we move beyond this, this focus on, on the present and the sort of the, the most likely to have a wider view of the longer term future and, and the less likely but catastrophic sort of potentialities that, you know, we've just heard from Martin and Suzanne that we collectively really ought to be factoring into our thinking. In the case of infrastructure, what what hope is there for, for more joined up thinking?
3: There's a few aspects to it. Firstly is the introduction of different types of tools or assessment processes for risk. Uh, The risk matrix that Martin referred to has become common across many different decision-making contexts when it's not necessarily the most appropriate tool, or it shouldn't be the only tool that we use. So it's not that we shouldn't use that in the future for the National Risk Register, but there should be other scenarios or, or stress testing approaches to frame the risk in a different way. And a very simple example of this is when I talk to people in New Zealand who are responsible for investing in city infrastructure assets, they now talk about what is the or it's very common for them to talk about earthquakes in the sense of what is the likelihood in the next 30 or 50 years of this event happening, not in the next two years. Because if they're building new infrastructure, that is the reasonable lifetime, if not longer of that infrastructure. And you need, if you're being responsible now, you need to think about what damage could that be um, exposed to within its lifetime. And I think that's a very Simple example of that.
0: Well, I was, I was wondering, Kristen, if you think that that more systemic approach and, and, and with a greater appreciation for the longer term, do you think in your area of looking at infrastructure, do you think that a greater awareness of climate change is is driving a different way of thinking about the long term and 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 how inf- infrastructure investments are, are considered and made.
3: I think it's helping to mainstream longer-term thinking. Um, I've been uh, in, interested in sustainability since I was an undergraduate civil engineer. But when I was originally in industry, a lot of what I did around sustainability was voluntary or I would be adding comments into reports even if the clients didn't ask for it. And we've seen a real transition in the last two or three years years um, around this this conversation, there's just a much more common conversation. It's much more mainstream to talk about uh, the, the possible impacts of climate change rather than just something that's nice to have if we've got time to think about it. And I've seen a really clear transition. So I definitely think it's helping people expand their thinking around what their responsibility is when they're planning or building infrastructure.
0: This is a leading question, Kristen, but do you think that shift to more long-term thinking that climate change is helping prompt can stretch into other areas too. Because obviously, what we've been talking about with a range of risks, including malicious kinds of attacks or just vulnerabilities in the system to other kinds of disruptions, you know, that can have long-term and cascading kind of dimensions that, that perhaps the longer-term thinking that climate change is engendering can lead to more systemic thinking and longer-term thinking in general.
3: I think it it certainly helps, but I I think it goes back to what Suzanne was talking about earlier around whether or not there is responsibility in the system. And and part of this growing attention to climate change is that there's becoming increasing responsibility being set in the system where it becomes untenable for companies not to think about this. And even with climate change, there's a challenge right now because there is a lot of emphasis on net zero and reducing emissions and not quite the same emphasis on adaptation. So it's how the wider system is responding to require people to think about this. I think it's helping, um, but we're not necessarily quite there and people just making the leap to, oh, we've got other things to think about.
2: Could I in? just one of the things that I learned recently that we have forgotten, for example, that London used to flood all the time and we rely so heavily on the Thames barrier to stop that happening and some friends of mine at the UCL warning research centre just just said what happens what happens if it fails what happens if if the tidal surges become so strong that the barrier can't hold it anymore have we have when did we last do our planning for what a significant flood in London would look like. And it's so obvious, and we're all just sitting here in this massively densely populated city, taking for granted that the Thames Barrier, which is quite old now, is going to keep all the spring tides at bay. I think that's a really a sort of really interesting live example.
3: I think that happens often, Suzanne. And I think when we go back to this tool that we use, Matrix, where you have the um, what is the probability and the impact, it gets a bit conflated if you look at the impact as being reduced because of the uh, interventions that you've made. And I think it's really helpful to start separating that out. So, uh, the example you've just described, if you think about the, for example, that the Teams barrier not working, then your, your potential impact on London is greatly increased. And I think it's helpful to think about those um, because when we build infrastructure in order to reduce impact, uh, with the levees in uh, New Orleans uh, is a really good example of that. You create big vulnerabilities in the system because unless that infrastructure is highly maintained uh, and can continue to serve the system in the way that it was designed, if it fails, you can end up with catastrophic failure because the the wider environment has been built up because of the perception that you've effectively reduced the the risk exposure.
1: In fact, I remember we had on our committee a Singapore witness who said that uh, the underground system You've got to make special precautions to keep the water out of the underground. And maybe that's something we should consider in London, uh, even though we do have the um, Thames Barrier as an overall uh, way of reducing threats. But uh, flooding the underground is a special, obvious threat. And maybe some more local precautions could be done there.
0: Just a, a final po- point on the sort of politics, which Suzanne mentioned a, a little bit earlier, which is that. Of course, things like, you know, the Thames barrier and the ability to, you know, build up cities has been a great driver of of progress in many senses. And so the temptation will always be, I think, to use technologies to reduce risks, even when that inevitably also creates some vulnerabilities or even considerable vulnerabilities. In a society like that, which is completely dependent on the technology and the interconnected technological systems, the the consequence of our discussion today is that that will put even greater power in the hands of experts who will be needed to monitor, understand cascading and interconnected risks, and be accountable for reporting on the warning signs. And that seems to be saying that, you know, our, our political system will become ever increasingly dependent on experts and the power of experts, which we know, you know, there are tensions in that and tensions in terms of a democratic society and societies in that quite rightly want to see accountability to elected politicians that, as Martin said at the outset, you know, serve to particular timescales. Suzanne, do you see a kind of a tension there or are we able to keep managing this relationship between the kind of the technologies we're dependent on, the experts that are needed to understand and monitor those, and then the kind of the, a democratic political system that that can actually make decisions and take take responsibility.
2: I don't think there's a tension if you are clear about who does what. And the point you made at the beginning of what you just said now is things have become so complicated that. It does really require experts to tell you what's going on. If I if I decided to set up my own flood forecasting business tomorrow, I'm not uh, there's no point. So we need the experts there to do the monitoring. One of the things that I learned in government actually, and I think this is particularly the case in the cyber world that Martin was talking about, is that it often is very young, very junior people who can tell you what's going on on the internet on technology what the Russian hackers might be going to do nobody else knows how to work the computers to that extent so you end up in this kind of very inverted pyramid of wisdom where all the senior people are sitting around the table looking at the 24 year old in their first job saying tell us was it the Russian military intelligence who did the hack you know and and that's disconcerting for everybody in the process, it's disconcerting for the young person at the bottom and for the people who are used to knowing everything. So so for me, you have to accept that the power of explaining what is happening has to be developed to the people who are looking at it. Then you make a distinction between that sounding the alarm, describing how the risk is changing, from the policy choice about what to do about it. And you need to be really clear on that Because then I sounded the alarm. I said there was going to be a pandemic. It was absolutely clear. The choice of the politicians is what that response should be. And and in that case, then, you can then, when the inquiry comes, you should always start from the inquiry and say, how's it going to look? When the inquiry comes, you can track if the alarm was sounded but the response didn't happen, why not? Mm
0: -hmm. Kristen, I'll I'll turn to Martin at the end, but Kristen, do you have any sense about how these discussions are happening in New Zealand. I, mean, I know you've got much broader view than that, but it, we did talk about the specific instance of, of the 2011 Christchurch earthquake. How's the politics of kind of expertise and dependence on, on expertise in New Zealand changed as a result of the Christchurch earthquake?
3: I think that there has always been a high level of expertise in New Zealand, but perhaps the earthquake paved the way for, a bit more attention or a bit more funding coming their way particularly from a research perspective. And there's certainly as a result, some some big research initiatives that have been happening uh, over the past 10 years across disciplines. So it's not just about developing our understanding of the the technical capacity of of a building to withstand a major event, but how does the coordination with the wider community happen? And what is the sort of capacity in the community to, to manage a response? Uh, and there's also been advancements in the way that the infrastructure owners come together and build their relationships so that they can understand how each other would make decisions in, in different situations. And there's actually been a lot of learning in the wider international community. There's good relationships between people in the US uh, and New Zealand and sharing their experiences um, of response and recovery. And I think the where things are going is to... To not just think about, and and this is sort of more broadly in areas that are exposed to earthquakes, is to think about the infrastructure performance, not just in terms of preventing an event, but having the capability to recover an asset quickly, which is a different kind of Performance indicator that's um, you know starting to be really uh, well promoted and actually you know driven by some people with a high, lot of experience in the US on this. And
0: Martin, any any concluding thoughts? Um,
1: two things. First, I think we ought to have as much openness as possible. There may be some issues like the threat from terrorism, uh, which have to be decided within governments using their expertise. But of course, in um, health, etc. As we've seen in the case of COVID-19, the main expertise is not in government. And if the public is to have confidence that the best advice is being used, then that requires an open discussion with experts in universities and elsewhere. Uh, So uh, we don't want to have uh, too much secrecy, except in the few obvious cases where it is essential, like terrorism. So more openness, more discussion about these priorities. But to end on a rather gloomy note, um, I I do think that among the threats which are getting larger year by year are those due to um, small dissident groups and even individuals empowered by bio and cyber technology. And I do think that all nations are going to have to worry more about the tension between three things we want to preserve, uh, privacy, security, and freedom because one such person is too many if they can produce some sort of cyber event that cascades nationally or even globally, uh, and ditto if they engineer a virus. And so I think um, a really dangerous downside of these new technologies, dual-use technologies, is that they do empower individuals. And uh, this is uh, something which is new. The village idiots in a global village have a global range now. And I think this is something which governance has to adjust to. And I don't know how they're going to do it.
0: It's, it's hard for me to, uh, Suzanne, did you want to? I was
2: comment? just get, I was going to reflect that that really is a gloomy note, but that's a whole, it is a whole nother subject, Rob. So we'll have to come back and discuss that.
0: We, we will have to come back to discuss that. In many senses, it is an, a whole nother subject. But I mean, I think it underscores really the main point of this conversation is which, which I'm taking, which is that, you know, there, there is no way that the governments can't fully face their responsibility for identifying absolutely critical risks, and then taking responsibility for working out how those should be monitored, managed, and, and then responded to in, in the cases when those events or hazards really hit. And so I, I think this conversation has really helpfully highlighted some of the recommendations of the House of Lords report, but going beyond that, sort of discussing in practice what what we should be delivering on behalf of society and how we should be aiming to help steer the system productively. Let's end now. And I say a huge thank you, uh, Martin, to you for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. And Suzanne. Thank you very much, Rob. And Kristen, it was great to have you join us. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure to follow and subscribe on your podcast provider. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIPOL. If you'd like to send feedback, which we'd love, or have ideas for future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks to our producer, Jessica Foster, and researcher, Nick Kostick and to you for listening.